in defiance of best practices for evasion, does not make himself inconspicuous. He tries to steal a German Kubelwagen and is immediately arrested. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we're actually joined by a guest. And I've got so many questions about this because Caitlin DeAngelis is a historian of cemeteries. Now, we're obviously about prisoners of war and prisoner of war escapes. And we've got a lady who's travelled a long way to get here as well, as soon as you hear her accent. To tell us, our listeners, a little bit more about you, where you're from, and what you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm a historian from Boston, and I'm actually trained as a 17th and 18th century historian, but I did my doctoral work about the politics of burying places in the 17th and 18th centuries. But I've always been really interested in cemeteries. And so during the centenary of the First World War, I was in France, I was visiting Vimy Ridge, and they had on the wall one of the the famous picture of Hitler visiting Vimy Ridge in June 1940. And I thought, oh, right, all of these places were here during the Second World War. I wonder what happened to them. And so I went from there and I started researching into the First World War cemeteries, but especially into the gardeners and the wage staff that took care of the cemeteries and what happened to them in the Second World War. And that turned into my book, which is called The Caretakers. A historian of cemeteries. What on earth has that got to do with prisoners of war? I've just written a book about the war graves gardeners who worked for the Imperial War Graves Commission, which is now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And so after the First World War, they stayed in France and Belgium to take care of the cemeteries. So I was interested in the cemeteries. But then I started researching them and I was interested in what happened to them in the Second World War because they were there when the Germans invaded in May 1940. And many of them were able to escape, but many of them were not. And they were stuck in France. And that's where the escape and evasion part comes in, because they helped these escapers and evaders. Ah, so these are foreign nationals living in the occupied countries, effectively, who then were allowed to continue going about their work but we're doing things on the side. Right, yes. So many of them were interned. Many of the gardeners were arrested and interned, but a few of the gardeners managed to stay free for various reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But then also their wives and children who were not interned were also really active in helping evaders and escapers because they spoke English and they were devoted to this cause. So you've talked about the gardeners who are the caretakers, as the title of your book goes. Who are the personalities involved? You know, who who are these guys that had you said stayed in in northern France, lived in northern France, and spoke French? You know, who who are these people? What were their personalities? How did they end up there? What was their background? And as I say, how did they end up working in the cemeteries before the Second sure, World War? Sure. Well, so in May 1940, there were 526 staff of the War Graves Commission in France and Belgium. 
And obviously, I, I can't tell that many stories in a single book. So I focus really on three people in the book, but bring in the other stories as they're relevant. And so the three people who are the core of the book are a gardener named Ben Leach, who's from Manchester. And in the First World War, he served with the Manchester Pals. He was a barman from Manchester. And he he served with a Manchester Pals battalion at all of their major engagements. So First Day at the Somme, Battle of Arras, Passchendaele, all of that. And he survived. Two of his younger brothers were killed. And at the end of the war, he decided to stay. Now, like many of the other gardeners, he had many reasons for staying. Finding a job in the UK after the war was really difficult. He also had some personal matters that made him maybe not want to go home. But he was also in a relationship with a French woman. And that was one of the reasons that a lot of them stayed, was that they had French wives and girlfriends. They also obviously had these feelings of debts or commitments to their comrades that they were leaving behind. And he does talk about that a little bit. But practically, a lot of what they talk about is that their wives and girlfriends wanted to stay. I even researched one one gardener who's actually American. He was from Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. But he was French-Canadian, so he served with a, a Canadian regiment. And he married a girl who was from the Somme and brought her back to Massachusetts and stayed there. They had a baby. And after a year, she said, I would rather go back to France. And so even though, you know, she was from a place that was bombed out, terrible, you know, just a really bad situation on the Somme, she's like, we need to go back to France. So they went back to France and he he worked for a while as a, as a war graves gardener. So there were a lot of reasons why people stayed. So, so the second gardener that I, I talk a lot about in the book is Bob Armstrong, who was an Irish gardener. He had an Irish passport. He was an Irish citizen. Not everyone who was born in Ireland in the 1890s had an Irish passport, but he did, which was really significant because since Ireland never declared war on Germany, he was in not an enemy alien. He was a neutral. And so when a lot of the other gardeners were arrested and put in civilian internment camps, he stayed free. He was able to stay free. And if he had kept his head down, he might not ever have had any trouble. But he was really involved with the resistance in a lot of different ways. He was recruited as a translator because obviously he spoke English. He was a, an agent of the Saint-Jacques Network, which was one of the really early French resistance networks founded in August 1940. So really, really early wow. and supported by de Gaulle. This is de Gaulle sending people over. And Bob Armstrong volunteered for that right away in his agent file. His start date is, I think, October 1940. So he's, he's really early. And he's also helping evaders right from the start. A lot of these Wargraves gardeners are helping people who are left behind after Dunkirk, so June 1940, and then they sort of transition into helping evaders who are mostly airmen who are getting shot down in northern France. And the third person that I talk about a lot in the book is Rosine Witten. She is a woman from Arras, and she was married to one of these Wargraves gardeners, her, her husband, Bert Witten, who was actually an RAF veteran, but he was a civilian internee. So he was one of the many gardeners who were arrested and put in a civilian internment camp. But she stayed free, and she became a really senior guide for the Comet Line. So she was a really, I know you've, I know you've probably talked about the Comet Line before. Yes, indeed, yeah. yes. And she's, she's someone who, you know, when I read about the Comet Line, you'll see her mentioned occasionally, but in the book I argue that she was actually a lot more significant than I think has been realized. But she was from Arras. She was a, a shopkeeper. She lived there her whole life. She was a child refugee in the First World War. 
And then when the Wargraves Commission came in after the war, they had their headquarters at Arras from 1929 until 1938. So that was sort of the heart of the Wargraves community in France. So her little shop was just near where everyone was walking to work. So she was in the middle of this community. So we've got not just those three, but you focus sure. primarily on those three. And you've got this, as you describe it, the cemetery gardens, the heart of this community. So we've got them in 1939, 1940. At the start of 1939, they're just gardeners. They're the wives of gardeners that are maintaining these cemeteries. You've got the rows upon rows of crosses and headstones. And we've all seen the photographs. They are spectacular and very grateful to, to the people who do main, maintain these to this day. But at the start of 1939, they were just gardeners doing their thing. Probably aware of the politics that was going on in Europe at the time. But how did we get from January the 1st, 1939 as gardeners to the end of 1940, where they are active? involved in resistance. I don't just mean the invasion of the Low Countries in France on the 10th of May 1940, but what was the transition? What was the motivation for them? And also, how did they actually make contact with these resistance groups? And how did they end up getting really into the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty of these resistance groups? Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. So that's a big question, but I'll take it in pieces. Take as long as you like. (laughs) Yeah. So in 1939, as you say, they're just gardeners doing their, their work. And the Wargraves Commission actually ordered them all to stay at their posts. There was a difference between Belgium and France. My book is mostly about France. In Belgium, the officer who was in charge there organized an evacuation pretty effectively. But in France, the orders were to stay at your post in your cemetery unless you were given an explicit order to evacuate from the mayor of your town. And in the event, those orders never came for most people. And so what happened was all of the Wargraves officers left. All of the officers got back to the UK But they didn't tell the gardeners that they were leaving and they didn't give the gardeners permission to leave. In fact, there were a few gardeners, including Bob Armstrong, who went to the Aris office and said, please, can I evacuate? My town is on fire. He was actually a head gardener. So he had men under him as well that he was asking for permission to evacuate. And they were sent back to work as late as early June. So even as the Dunkirk evacuation is happening, they're still ordering them back to their cemeteries. And so the the threat is that if they leave without permission, they'll lose their jobs and their pensions. And so as the Germans are advancing, some of them say, it's not worth it, I'm going anyway. And they evacuate through the, the channel ports, through Calais, Boulogne, some through Dunkirk. You know, there's one story of a, a family with a, an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're jumping onto a ship in Dunkirk. Another family stows away in the hold of a coal boat, a Norwegian coal boat to get away. But by the time they decide to leave for many of them, it's too late. And so fewer than half of the gardeners in France were able to evacuate. A few of them were actually killed during the evacuation. And then about half are left behind in France. And right away, they start helping evaders and escapers. So after Dunkirk, there are thousands of people left behind. So was this on an ad hoc basis at this stage? Just as someone turned up, happened to be passing by the cemetery, maybe asked for some water and that led to a conversation. Is, th- is that how it's working at this point? In, in yeah, exactly. So in June 1940, they were just helping anyone who turned up. And actually, one of the people who turned up was a Wargraves gardener. There was a gardener named George Hignett, who was not a First World War veteran. He was actually a younger serviceman. In 1936, they had hired nine younger reservists because they realized the gardeners were getting older and they needed a new generation of gardeners. They hired these nine men, including George Hignett, who was from the Gordon Highlanders. And he worked in Longueval, 
which is where Delville Wood is. So the, the South African monument at Delville Wood. But when the war started, he and these other reservists were called back to their regiments. So he and another Gordon Highlander named Peter Moore, Peter Moore was a gardener in Beaumont Hamel, went back to the Gordon Highlanders, trained for a few weeks, and then came back to France with their regiments. And so George Hignett was with the 51st Highland Division. And he was captured in June 1940. And as you may know, marching with a column of prisoners through northern France on the way to Germany. And he thought to himself, this is my chance. I have to get away now. So he and a friend of his jumped out of the prisoner of war column, hid in a culvert. The prisoner of war column left. And then they went back to Longueval, where he had friends and the other gardeners were there. They gave him money. They gave him clothing. And there's, there's actually a great source. One of the gardeners in Beaumont Hamel kept a daily gardening log. And on July 10th, 1940, he writes, Ginger Hignett at Hebitern, because he's moving around. He's, he's getting help from these different gardeners that he knows because he's been working there for the past four years. And he eventually escapes. He gets down to the Pyrenees and he crosses into Spain and all that. But so he knew that he could ask the other gardeners for help. And the gardeners are helping other people who just turn up at their doors. Bob Armstrong helps several people. Ben Leach, in his gardening log, he fixes a lot of bicycles for people who are evading. Excellent, because we, we do know that the bicycle, we love a good bicycle, but whether it's stolen, preferably stolen, exchanged as well. We've come across exchange of bicycles where they've had a particularly rubbish one and they've seen a slightly better one. My question that's automatically drawn there is that, yes, they've got escaping prisoners of war, or evading prisoners of war, going past and they're looking in for sanctuary. But obviously the Germans have arrived on the scene. What was the reaction of the staff that were left? What also, what was the reaction of the Germans to these things? Because we obviously, without touching on it too much, the Allied cemeteries are very different to the German cemeteries on the First World War battlefields. Did you come across any issues that were raised with the advancing Axis forces as they came through? And what their attitudes were to the staff who were there to maintain these war graves? Yeah, so one thing that's really important that happens with the First World War memorials is that on June 1st, 1940, Hitler makes a visit to the Old Western Front. And he visits the Menin Gate and Notre Dame de Lorette, which is the French cemetery, and Vimy Ridge. And he sort of has this attitude of these are acceptable places for German soldiers to visit. And so the occupying troops actually went on excursions to these monuments and cemeteries where officers thought it was a, an educational thing for their young soldiers to do, to visit these First World War battlefields. So they would organize trips. And if you look at ordinary German soldiers' photo books, scrapbooks, they're very often photos of them posing in these allied cemeteries. And that's part of Hitler's thinking about his victory in France in 1940 as ending the First World War with a more congenial ending to him. So he makes the French surrender in the same railway car where they signed the, the armistice in 1918. So he's, he's doing a lot of manipulation of the First World War landscape to turn it into sort of an educational and even pleasure area for German soldiers. So effectively, the staff that were there maintaining, I don't want to say we're sort of exempt from various things, but it made more sense to keep even foreign national staff that are working at those sites on site, unless I guess they're of an age that could be of detriment to the occupying forces. 
Well, so what happens, the, the timeline is, so they're helping evaders in June 1940. But then in July 1940, that's when the arrests start. So most of the gardeners are arrested between July 13th and July 15th, 1940. And they're sent to civilian internment camps. So those from Nord and Pas-de-Calais in the, in the north are sent to Upper Silesia. I don't know if you've heard about Woodhouse, the author, yes, the yeah. Bertie and Jeeves author. Yeah, so they were in the same camp as P.G. Woodhouse in Upper Silesia. And the ones from the Somme and farther south were sent to Saint-Denis in Paris. And then the wives and children who were interned, mostly British-born women and children who were interned, were sent to Liebenau and Vittel. In July 1940, the community is decimated, right? There are 209 gardeners who are left behind. And of those, about 150 to 175 are interned. Some of them just for a short time, because these are disabled First World War veterans. Some of them are released pretty early. People who have obvious physical disability. You know, there's one gardener who has one leg. There are gardeners who are blind or deaf. And some of them are released earlier than the rest. But most of them are kept until late 1944 or even into the spring of 1945. So that event, those arrests in July 1940, really galvanized the civilians who are left behind. And that's sort of the moment where they had been helping evaders and they had been bringing, you know, small comforts to the hospitals and those sorts of things. But that's when they really turn. And there's a pretty robust British community in Arras because it's not just the gardeners who are there. There's also a whole tourism industry, people who give battlefield tours, who rent out cars, who sell souvenirs, like those sorts of things. There's a whole British tourism industry in Arras. And one of the people who's really important is the local leader of the British Legion branch, who's a guy named Arthur Richards. And he works as a professional printer. And he's from Birmingham. And after the First World War, he just stayed in France. He had a wife and five young children in Birmingham. He stayed and he had a new family in France. But he had a nom de guerre. And his nom de guerre was Cor de Lion. So he's like Richard the Lionheart. And around him, a lot of the British people in Arras sort of coalesced around this loose group called Richard the Lionheart, where they helped evaders. They actually helped some of the people who were in the temporary POW camps escape from those by providing them with clothing and, and money. They had they were working with a doctor who was able to get a couple of people out. So this sort of summer of 1940 is when they start working, but it's still very loose. It's still very improvised. And one of the things about these gardeners is that they know each other from before the war. They are already sort of committed to, maybe it's too strong to say an ideology, but they, they, have, they have a cohesive loyalty to each other and to sort of the allied cause. That's the whole reason that their community exists in the first place. And so when we think about early resistors, we often think about people who have pre-existing organizations, communists or trade unions, that these are sort of incubators of resistance. And the gardeners tend to be more politically conservative than that, but they do have a lot of those same elements of a pre-existing relationship, a language that they share, and also because of the way the community was spread out over all these small towns, they have a really distributed network. So when someone is shot down in a place like Beaumont Hamel, Ben Leach knows the people in Arras, that he's able to bring at least information to the people in Arras. And Arthur Richards, being a professional printer, his job was making false papers for people. So he made hundreds of false papers. And I've actually seen one of the originals of his, his false papers 
an airman's family in the US still has the the false card. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. So so it's still a fairly unorganized the formation of the structure is is coming and you obviously mentioned things. Are there any particular standout stories, particularly at that time, of people who were helped to evade or even were extracted and got away from there? Yeah, well, I think there are two stories that I'd like to tell you. First, I should probably talk about Rosine Witten. Rosine Witten is the person within the Wargraves community who, after the war, is the most decorated. She has all of the French gallantry awards. She's an officer of the Legion of Honor. She's Croix de Guerre with a silver gilt star. She has the Medal of the Resistance. And from the UK, she has a British Empire medal. From the US, she has a Uh, Medal of Freedom with bronze palm. So she has a lot of recognition for what she did on the Comet Line. And so her story with the Comet Line, she, she was involved with a lot of this evasion stuff early on. But in late 1942, she starts working with the Pat O'Leary Line. And she's part of a small cell of people who's working with the Pat Line. Which is the one that stretches down to Marseille and then over the Pyrenees on the eastern side of the southeastern side of France, eastern end of the Pyrenees down towards Barcelona. Exactly. And so she starts out working with them. But in, I think it's March 1943, they're hit very hard by a crackdown. And that line, they reform later, but that version of the line disintegrates. But the Comet Line is also in trouble at this time. André Dijon is captured in January 1943. So this early 1943 thing, there's a lot of realignment that's happening within the escape lines. And Rosine Witten's little cell, which is really connected to a lot of the railway workers in northern France, the people who work in her cell are mostly members of OCM, the Organisation Civile et Militaire, which is one of the big French resistance networks. So they are not affected by these arrests, but they don't have any outlet since they were connected with the Pat O'Leary line. But at the same time, the Comet line is looking for trusted people because they've also had a really terrible series of arrests. And so their whole group sort of migrates over and becomes attached to the Comet line. And so what Rosine does is people get delivered to her house in Arras. She keeps them for a couple of days, up to sometimes as long as two weeks. And then she brings them to Paris and hands them over to Frederick de Jong at the Gardenord. And then they go on to Bordeaux or, or wherever they're off to. And she does that for several months. But then there's a problem in OCM. Actually, it's not a crackdown on the Comet Line. So you have to put it in the context of OCM as well as the Comet Line, where in July 1943, they have a crackdown and she has to leave in a hurry. The only reason she's not arrested is that she's on a train at the time that these arrests are happening. So she goes to Paris. She joins the Comet Line. She lives at the headquarters of the Comet Line with Jean-François Northon, Franco, and Jacques Legrel, Jérôme. And she lives there and she spends the next six months or so just traveling around all day, every day. She basically lives on the trains and just sleeps at the Comet Line headquarters when she's overnight in Paris. Everything that I found says that she did three trips a week, which is a lot of trips. I don't know if she actually maintained that pace over the entire period from July 1943 to January 1944 when she was arrested, but it's dozens and dozens of trips. And I think that one of the reasons why she's not as 
recognized as a really senior guide on the Comet line is that she worked under a couple of different aliases. And so if you look in some of the early writing about the Comet line, like there's a multi-volume set by a French resistant called Rémy, and he went around and interviewed a lot of different people. And he has her under a couple of different aliases, but he doesn't join them up. He doesn't realize that they're all one person. And so I think that that has sort of made it hard for people to see all of the work that she was doing. And also that she was a member of OCM. Right. And when we talk about the Comet Line, we often talk about its independence from the armed French resistance, because people like André de Jong justifiably afraid that being affiliated with the armed French resistance would hurt their core mission. And in the end, she was right. It was OCM that had this security breach that led to all of these arrests. But Rosine Witten's part of the Comet Line, you know, if you think of the Comet Line is like a river and their little mm-hmm. tributary, is an OCM tributary. And so I think that that doesn't necessarily always fit very well in the story of the Comet Line. But she she's in the Comet Line after André de Jong is already arrested. And so André de Jong's just not in charge anymore. It's her father that takes over, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And Rosine works directly with Frédéric de Jong. He's the person that she hands over the evaders to when she gets them to Paris. So Rosine worked for a whole year for the Comet Line. And she was arrested along with Jean-François Northolme and Jacques Legrel in January 1944. And she was sent to Robinsbrook, the concentration camp for women. She only stayed there a very short time before being transferred to a sub-camp that was a munitions factory called Halation. And ironically, she was set to make anti-aircraft shells. That's what she was doing there. And it was a very small camp, only about a thousand prisoners in Czechoslovakia near Pilsen. And the Germans had this policy of distributing the munitions factories so they were harder to bomb. But that meant that she wasn't liberated until May 5th, 1945. So like a very, very, very late liberation. And she went home to Arras immediately. She actually got there within about two weeks of being liberated. She was back in Arras. And there was a telegram waiting for her saying that her husband, Bert, was very sick. He had been repatriated to London in March 1945. And when he got back, he went directly into the hospital and died in August 1945. So she was able to see him before he died. She was liberated from the concentration camp May 5th. And by May 24th, she was in London. So she was right out of a terrible concentration camp. She was very underweight. She had lifelong disabilities from being in that camp, but she showed up in London as soon as possible so that she could see him. Just to round it off from there, did she go on to a ripe age? Uh, You mentioned lifelong disabilities there, but... uh... Yeah, she actually went back to Arras and she sold her property there. She became a stewardess on the cross-channel ferry from Dover to Boulogne. So if you took that ferry in the 1950s or 60s, you might have met her. She lived until 1995 and she didn't give very many interviews. She didn't really talk about things a lot. But she did give two small interviews, one to a man named Edgar Delange, who was the son of her chief of her cell of the Comet Line. That was Eugène Delange, who was executed in 1943. So she gave an interview to his son, who was also arrested with all of them. So, you know, people who had shared her experience. And then there was also a local French historian in Arras named André Coyou, who interviewed a lot of resistance in the 1980s. And he didn't have any children. She gave 
gave him her Haitian uniform, which is still on display in a very small museum on the Somme. If you uh, are ever traveling around Ocean Villers, right, the on the World War One battlefields, there's a small museum there that has her uniform. It's Avril Williams' guest house, and she has this little museum that has all of the, this huge collection of First World War and Second World War things on display. So it's right down the road from Beaumont Hamill. So if you're ever in Beaumont Hamill, just just keep going. I will definitely be stopping off. <laughs> and stop in for tea. And yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What a fantastic story. Just just that one alone is is absolutely brilliant. You said there was another one that you wanted to cover, which I think was an, an evader. Yeah, so thinking about coming on this podcast that you do escapes and evasions, this is actually a story of one person who gets captured and four who evade. So this is in 1944, June 1944, exactly three weeks after D-Day. And this is the story of Brigadier General Arthur Vanneman, who is the chief of intelligence for the 8th Air Force. So a very high-ranking officer. He's briefed on all of the secret stuff. He's briefed on Ultra. He has all of the sensitive information. And three weeks after D-Day, the Allies are still fighting to get out of Normandy. Things are in the balance. So this is happening June 28th, 1944. So just three weeks later. What happens with Arthur Vanneman is... He thinks that his men will respect him more if he has been on missions, if he can wear an air medal, which you get after you do five combat missions, that that will show them that he knows what he's talking about, that he's experienced what they've experienced. And so he decides to go on these observing missions into northern France. It takes him a while to convince his commanding officer, who's Jimmy Doolittle, to let him do this. And they don't actually run it up to the high command. It's just between the two of them. And so it's a secret. Air Marshal Tedder was not pleased. I can't imagine he would have been. I mean, that's... That's a, there's, there's, that's a, there's gentlemen's agreements and there's gentlemen's agreements, but somebody who partial to so much information, to be a fly on the wall in that room, mm. when you go, oh, I've got this great idea, can I go and do this? That is ballsy. Yes, and he, he says that Jimmy Doolittle was reluctant at first, but he worked on him for a long time and he eventually let him go. So Vanneman goes on two missions and it's fine. But the third mission, he runs into some trouble. So they're supposed to be bombing a V-2 rocket site in northern France. And the plane gets hit. The engine on the right wing is in flames. There's a big fire. The pilot says, you have to bail out. Like The ship is going down. And so Vanneman jumps and four other men on the crew jump. So five are out and five are in the plane. And then the fire goes out. And they're able to fly the plane back to the UK. And I actually, I have an unpublished memoir from the pilot of that plane, who's a young guy named Clarence Jameson from California. And he wrote a little bit about what it was like to fly back without the general. So I'm going to read this. A half hour later, we limp over the base at Kim Bolton, just as the group is coming in to land. I call the control tower. Tower, this is D-Dog. We have an engine out and request permission to land immediately. The tower calls... D-Dog, you'll have to circle and wait until the group has landed. We circle. I wonder how high they hang pilots who go out with generals and don't bring them home. Tower, this is D-Dog. Request permission to land immediately. D-Dog, have you wounded aboard? Tower, this is D-Dog. No, we don't have wounded on board. D-Dog, circle until the group has landed. So we circle some more. Maybe I should have jumped even after the fire had gone out. It might have been better than trying to explain why I came back minus one general. But I have to let them know right away about the general. Better not broadcast it, though. Jerry might be listening. That might prove to be very unhealthy for my crew that jumped, and the general, too. Tower, 
This is D-Dog. Request permission to land immediately. This is the pilot, and I am the only officer left on board. D-Dog, that's too bad. Circle until the group has landed. And I grumble about the thick-headed so-and-sos in the tower for about 10 seconds. And then the tower and my earphones both vibrate as the radio blasts out. What did you say? D-Dog, this is tower. Come in. I recognize the voice of Colonel Roar and begin to wonder which wrist to slash first. (laughs) (laughs) So they drag him in for questioning. And, you know, there were were other men still left on board, so they were able to corroborate. And there's a report from the engineer who says... Yeah, this is terrible damage. This thing should have blown up. So he wasn't in too too much trouble, but he was very scared. Yes. My words. So there's a very, very important man floating around under a bit of silk in, in France. What happened next? Oh, God, I've got to know about this. <laughs> so General Vanneman and four members of the crew parachute down to the Somme. And this is why it's in the book, because they parachute basically down on top of Beaumont Hamel, which is where Ben Leach, the gardener, works. And he ends up saving several members of the crew, but not General Vanneman, who, in defiance of best practices for evasion, does not make himself inconspicuous. He tries to steal a German Kubelwagen and is immediately arrested. You shock us. <laughs> that must have attracted a few people's attention. So a brigadier general in flying kit is driving around in a German Kugelwagen. I don't think he got to the driving part. I think he was arrested in the process of trying to steal this. Ah, I yes. see, because that would yes. have st- stood out. <laughs> yeah, so he they, they take him in. And, you know, this is a very small town. The people who are occupying this town are, are low-level guys, and they bring him to what he calls the Hoosgau like the little local jail, and he's questioned by the local occupiers. Now, the thing about General Vanneman is that from 1937 to 1941, he was actually the American air attaché to Berlin. It was his job to keep track of the Luftwaffe, to figure out what they were doing. So he had met Hitler, Goering, all of the sort of aviation manufacturing people. He had his own personal Messerschmitt that he flew around. So he spoke German and he could understand what they were saying about him, but he didn't want to let on that he spoke German. And so all he gave them was, you know, name, rank and serial number. And they were very frustrated because that didn't make any sense that there was this brigadier general and they knew that they hadn't shot down a plane right? No plane had come down. So they thought that he was a plant. They didn't believe anything that he said. And they sent him up through channels. He actually ended up at Stalagluft 3 and became the the ranking officer at Stalagluft 3, being the highest ranked American Air Force officer captured by the Germans. But the people in in Stalagluft 3 also thought he was a plant, thought that he was coming in with information. Maybe he was there to organize an escape or something. And and he had to disappoint them and say, no, nope, just bad luck here. At what stage of the war did he end up in Stalagluft 3? So he he was in a hospital in Frankfurt for about a month. He tweaked his back when he was coming down. He's a guy in his 50s. So he's there in the fall of 1944. In the spring of 1945, they actually send him on a a useless mission to try to negotiate a separate peace with the Americans as the Soviets are coming in. They send him and another American officer, Del Spivey, to try to get the Americans to take over, but uh, that does not work. (laughs) It is a bit reminiscent of Hess, isn't it? Yeah. 
in the oh, sense yeah. of you've got this high-ranking official who suddenly appears in their hands, which you weren't expecting. It's way out of the norm. You know, normally you're getting pilot officers, maybe a squadron leader or a wing commander is kind of the, the more senior among them. They tend to get relatively high-ranking from the army because of the nature of how they serve and how they were captured. But amongst the airmen, it doesn't tend to be that senior. So, and then to use them as a negotiating attempt... As Hess was trying to do, there are there's quite a few right. similarities and reminiscence about Hess. Yeah. Admittedly, Hess had gone completely crackers. Yeah, you know, I think I think they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't believe his story really. He was very afraid that he would accidentally say anything about Ultra or about any of the things that he knew, and so he spent a lot of his time trying to invent a false story that he could say if they did question him sharply. But they didn't actually ever question him with any torture or even pressure. They had a guy who stayed on him at the hospital 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. but he said that he taped his mouth shut at night with medical tape so that he wouldn't talk in his sleep. He says he says he didn't reveal anything. So the other people in the crew, and they're sort of scattered around the Somme. And one of them is the navigator, this guy, Donald Rentschler. And he lands, he's picked up by these French farm workers, they strip him, they put him in French farm workers coveralls, give him a farm implement and, and spirit him away. And about half an hour later, someone comes back with Ben Leach, the gardener from Beaumont Hamill, who takes Donald Rentschler and puts him in the tool house at one of the big cemeteries, so at Sayre Road Cemetery Number 2. Actually, I have a great photograph of the tool shed at Sayre Road Cemetery Number 2 that was shared with me by one of the evading American airmen. And after the war, Ben Leach sent him a photograph of the tool house. And it says on the back, in remembrance of you staying as guest, question mark, at Sarah Red Cemetery number two. And so he, so he keeps Rentschler and also an RAF evader named Kenneth Bulow. They are in the cemetery for a while. Then they go and they, they put them in a barn. But what happens is... A local resistor who also actually worked for the War Graves Commission, but he was a French laborer, not like a member of the permanent British staff. He was in the resistance as well, and he was killed by the Germans. They attempted to arrest him, and he resisted arrest and just was shot and killed. And that really scared everybody in the area. And so this is after D-Day. The escape lines have broken down. There are a lot of evaders who are just stuck wherever they are. They're just waiting for basically the infantry to come get them. And so there's a shell game of moving them from place to place. And so Rentschler and Bulow actually end up, Ben Leach doesn't have anywhere else to put them. So he puts them in the trenches at the Newfoundland Memorial Park in Beaumont Hamill. And they spend six nights in the old trenches, which are now overgrown because they're not being tended and maintained during the occupation, but they hide there. But eventually the liberating force comes through and picks them up and they're freed. So there's that was the navigator, Donald Rentschler, and Kenneth Bulow is an RAF guy who just mm-hmm. was also in the area. There's a, a lot of them around. The other three are also helped. Actually, when he jumps out of the plane, one of them, the, the bombardier, breaks his jaw. He gets, gets pushed back into the fuselage of the plane and, and breaks his jaw. And then when he lands, because he's basically concussed, he also breaks his leg. So he's in really bad shape when he hits the ground. But there's a couple that takes him in, their name is Henon, and before the war, their job was that they made luxury caravans, like campers for pleasure trips. And they live right near Albert, there's a an aircraft factory. And so they use, for their caravans, they use a lot of the same sort of canvas and techniques as the aircraft company is using. 
So they have a spare caravan that they've hidden in the woods covered with brush. And so they can't move him because he's got a broken leg and a broken jaw. He's in, he's in bad shape. So they stash him in the caravan in the woods near Avlui. And he stays there for the next couple of months until he's liberated. And he helps them paint a giant American flag on a bedsheet that they suspend from their house as the liberating force is coming through. I mean, these are fascinating insights. Part of putting your book together and doing this research, did you actually manage to find direct people who had been through these escape lines with them who were able to provide you with the, the relevant detail? Because I'm guessing that there's not a lot recorded about this in reports anywhere, or, or the American reports slightly different to the reports that we normally deal with on our usual escape. Yeah, I think the American reports are a little bit more extensive than what you usually see in the UK archives. They often have a lot of the appendices still with them. So there will be often during their interview, like the quick notes someone took during the interview and then the typed up copy and the notes in the interview are usually more extensive. But what I also have are the American MISX files. So that's sort of the American counterpart to mm -hmm. MI9, the military intelligence. And after the war, they go to Paris, they set up an office and their job is to investigate claims by French people who say that they helped American invaders. And so their job is to go out and either visit these people or get letters from them, get testimony get the airmen to testify or cross-check their escape and evasion reports in order to see if the people are due compensation or decorations or, or whatever. And so this is where, you know, Rosine Witten, who is awarded an American Medal of Freedom, has, has a file. And she has a Medal of Freedom with a bronze palm which is actually a pretty high award for the Americans. So the highest American Medal of Freedom with gold palm, silver palm, bronze palm, no palm. But then most helpers just got sort of a certificate of thanks that said, we acknowledge that your claim is true. Thank you for your help. But it doesn't sort of rise to the level of that recognition. And so Ben Leach got a, a certificate. And actually, one of the reasons that I decided to write the book, I was interested in the subject, but you know, like why, why should I write this book? Early on in the research, I saw a letter from Ben Leach's son, Maurice. And one of the things he said was that the greatest disappointment of his father's life was that he didn't get more recognition from the Americans. Like he got the certificate, but they didn't really engage with him. And he, he didn't really, he didn't feel like they recognized his contribution. And so I, my grandfather is in the U.S. Army Air Force in World War II. And I thought, I can do this. I can write this book. And he's long gone, but it's sort of a, an act of remembrance to put his story down on paper and share it with people. So how long have you been dedicated to this particular subject matter? I mean, you, you mentioned early on in the research, has this been years of work to put this together for you? Yeah, so I, I decided to write the book cleverly. I, I decided to write this book in the fall of 2019, not knowing what would happen in the spring of 2020. But what the pandemic meant was that I, I couldn't travel to archives and things, but it did mean that I had a lot of time to contact families. And I think there was something about that pandemic moment that made people want to talk about their family histories. And so a lot of times I would just email someone out of the blue and say, hey, I, I came across, you know, your father's story or your grandfather's story. Do you want to talk to me? And a lot of times they, they said yes and shared photographs, especially the airmen. This was often a story that had been very cherished in the family, right? Some of the families had the ID cards and you know, one they had the, the silk map from the escape, all, all sorts of things like that. I also tried to contact gardeners' families and 
that was very different. You know, a lot of times with the gardeners' families, they were sometimes surprised that anyone was interested. I mean, often very interested and helpful and engaged. But the story of the gardeners was not always one that was super valued in the way that the evading airmen stories had become these like family legends. And so that was a whole other way of researching. I mean, I'm a trained you know PhD researcher and an 18th centuryist. I'm used to archives where no one is talking to you at all. So that was a really different thing for me, but it was really wonderful to connect with people and, and talk about their families and, and these histories. The, the War Graves Commission doesn't actually have very much information about the gardeners. What happened was in the 1970s and 1980s, as the gardeners were dying, they just routinely destroyed the personnel files because they were not seen as having historical value. It, you know, it wasn't malicious. It was just, this is an old file and, and get rid of it. But so the War Graves Commission has some cards that show that the people were employed and it has a handful of these personnel files, but about 97% of them were destroyed. So a lot of times we're sort of recreating what's happening from family archives, from these MISX files, from French resistance files, all of that. So back in series four, in episode three, we actually covered uh, someone called uh, Raymond Shirk, who had been captured, had escaped, got back, redeployed, and then actually ended up having to do an evasion this time again, because he was shot down again and managed to avoid being captured. But he actually landed in one of these cemeteries and did get help from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission gardeners at the time. Do, do you have any more information on that, who it might have been that helped them at, at any stage of this evasion? Because it sounds like these are the sort of guys that you want to be <laughs> landing and, and getting help from. Right, yeah, I... I... I looked in, in Ben Leach's MISX file and there's a list of the people that he helped and, and next to each one, MISX has said, have we confirmed this or not? And Ray Shirk is one of the people on the list and it has a notation that says help confirmed from MISX. So it's, I, I'm not sure exactly what his part in that evasion was. I mean, one thing that we know that he was doing was collecting information and delivering it to Arthur Richards in Aris for ID papers. But there was also another person, Leon Roussel, who was also doing ID papers. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly how Ben Leach was involved in this evasion, but MISX was satisfied that he was involved in some way. Excellent. No, that's fantastic. So what we have is with these gardeners, we've got men who've been based in for 20 odd years, you know, they, they, they basically stayed after the First World War. Some of them were younger and they've been hired later, but they've been based in France, embedded in the community, married to French women. They've got children who are uh, locals themselves. And so when the Second World War comes along, they're able to remain incognito effectively. And whether by accident or design, they've got themselves involved in helping primarily evaders, some escapers, such as Hignett, who was an escaper, and the gardener himself, but primarily evaders. And they've got involved in these evasion lines, Comet Line, Patelier Line, Possum Line, in the case of Raymond Shark, we've covered Rosine Witten and Ben Leach in some detail. With D-Day coming along, you mentioned yourself that it kind of goes from active evasion where they're sending the parcels down the line towards Bordeaux, Perpignan, Marseille, all these sorts of places to head over the Pyrenees and that was standard practice. With D-Day, you've then, it almost flips completely into waiting to be liberated, as many of the prisoner war camps were too. So how did that change their day-to-day -day lives and what they were doing? Were they instead trying to, as you mentioned, with the ones being hidden in the trenches, were they actually just effectively collecting them and hiding them, waiting to be liberated themselves and from there what activities were they up to up until the end of the war so for ben leach as you said it's 
it's hiding people and waiting. And there's actually a fabulous picture that was shared with me by a family of some of the other men from Vanaman's crew who were all being hidden by a woman named Josephine Heller. And at the liberation of Lille on September 3rd, she had a party and her husband was a photographer. So he took a photo of them all together and they're cheering and yelling. And you can tell how loud they're yelling because she has a little dog and the little dog in the picture is just looking around so startled by by all of their yelling. So yeah, so people like Ben Leach were just trying to get through to the end. But as I said, one of the people that he worked with, Rene Mochamblay, was killed in mid-July 1944. So the danger was still very real. And even, I think, heightened as the Germans started to lose control and lash out a little bit on those some of those civilian populations. You know, one of the Wargrave's children, we haven't really talked much about the children, but there was a teenager named... Harry Legg, and Harry Legg fought with the French communists. He was a prisoner on the last train to leave Los, the famous train de Los, which was September 1st, 1944. So just as the liberation is happening, this last train goes. And he goes to Sachsenhausen concentration camp and dies at Bremenfarge, which is the concentration camp servicing submarine pens. And so it's still very dangerous right up to the end for them. Rosine Witten is by this time at Ravensbrück. So she's actually transferred to Halaitian, the subcamp where they work on the munitions factory. And they're actually transferred. They arrive at Halaitian at two o'clock in the morning on June 6th, 1944. And so there's a lot of accounts from other women in her transport about the full moon. And they march to the camp under this full moon and they arrive and they have soup and it's the best soup that they've had since they've left France and they never get a meal like that again. But on June 6th at two in the morning, they're sitting there eating their soup. So that's really just sort of this confluence of of what's happening. But of course, for her, it's going to be another 11 months before she's liberated. And she was actually very badly wounded at Halaitian, a woman working across from her. Their job was to unscrew faulty anti-aircraft ammunition shells to reuse any components that were still usable, which was obviously a very dangerous job. And so the woman across from her, one of her shells exploded and she was killed, but Rosine was just badly wounded in the leg. But she survived and she was liberated in May 1945. Now, we haven't really talked a lot about Bob Armstrong and what happened to him. So he was involved in a lot of different evasions, but the evasion that he was eventually arrested, tried and sentenced to death for was the evasion of Arthur Cox who was one of the very first American 8th Air Force evaders. He was shot down in the raid on Lille in October 1942. So this is one of the very, very first Mm. American evaders. So Bob Armstrong and a group of school teachers actually help him and keep him for months because they're not really connected to a line yet. But Bob Armstrong is eventually able to make contact with Eugène Delange, who's Rosine Witten's boss and send Arthur Cox down the Pat O'Leary line. Arthur Cox is actually one of the very last evaders to sort of get over the Pat O'Leary line before it collapses. And while he does that, while he's going over the Pyrenees, he's wearing Bob Armstrong's coat. Because one thing that the helpers always say is it's very difficult to clothe the evaders. They tend to be young, strong, tall, fit guys. And a lot of the clothes that were available in France, I mean, there were no clothes available in France. There were shortages of everything. But it had a really hard time finding clothes that fit them well enough to be inconspicuous. And Bob Armstrong, he was in the Irish Guards in the First World War. He's six feet tall. He's a big guy. And he gives Arthur Cox his coat. 
And in the eventual trial, this is one of the few things that he actually admits to in the trials that he gave Arthur Cox the coat. And Bob was involved in a lot of different resistance things. He, he had a standing weekly meeting with the local coordinator of the BOA, which is the, the people on the ground who are receiving clandestine RAF flights. Right. So when they're bringing in munitions and things for the, for the resistance or agents in and out. And he Bob had a standing weekly meeting with the, the local coordinator of that. So he knew a lot. But in the trial, he only admits to helping Arthur Cox and they're able to really limit the damage. Now, he and his co-defendants are all sentenced to death, but those sentences are commuted a few months later. So he's deported to Germany moved around to a lot of different prison camps. He is beaten very badly. He's also a wounded ex-serviceman, so he has a leg wound that really affected his legs. Made him, you know, He had one leg shorter than the other. And that wound opened up and killed him eventually. So he, he died in December 1944 in Germany. So one of the very few Irish resistance who died in Germany, there were a couple of others, but mm -hmm. they really tried to have the Irish government like exchange him. But one of the things the Germans kept moving him around, they couldn't find him. You mentioned that back at the start of the war that they were very expectant of some communication from the Commonwealth war graves to say, go on, out you get, we'll evacuate you out. Uh, they've obviously then undergone another six years of war. Coming at the end of the war then, hostilities have ended in this part of the world. What really happened from there? Is there any evidence of these guys going back to the Commonwealth war graves and going, oi, just left us there for a bit or did they continue what was the sort of must have been a fairly tricky atmosphere but they were obviously very dedicated to their cause as you say there was most of them were ex-servicemen from the first world war how was that left kind of awkward situation for what is a big institution with these people who have actually suffered quite considerably Right. Uh, in the previous uh, few years. They were very dedicated to the job, right? The job of caring for all their comrades, but their feelings toward their employer, to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission as an employer, were very complicated. Actually, in the internment camp in Ilag 8 in Upper Silesia, when they arrived, one of the very first things they did, there were about 100 of them there. They had an all-hands meeting of their union, and they adopted some resolutions. And so they wanted to be compensated. They wanted their full wages for the whole time from the invasion until they were released. They wanted indemnity for any property that they had lost. They wanted leave to recover after they were released from the camp, but they wanted some medical leave. And their final resolution at this meeting in the camp, they said, in view of the fact that every man did as ordered and stuck to his post, they wanted an inquiry into lack of proper arrangement for our evacuation and into the complete disappearance of all our leaders. I mean, we could get into the, the specifics of what happened. Things were very different in Belgium and in France. The officer in charge in Belgium actually had a really robust evacuation plan. He had all of these lists. Everyone was assigned to a color-coded list with leaders and transport and everything. His name is Reginald Haworth. He had been a Royal Army Service Corps logistics person in Belgium in the First World War. You can tell. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had a healthy respect for what could happen when transport was going to be fouled up in Belgium. And the guy in France was a Canadian named Brigadier John Mervyn Prower. And he was very new to the job. He had just retired from the Canadian Army in 1938. And he had not been with the Wargraves Commission very long. And he had a completely different attitude. He spent all of his time at BEF headquarters. He had gone to staff college with a lot of Lord Gort's staff. And so he was angling for a different job, which is he wanted to be brought back into the active army as director of graves registration for the current war. And he wasn't very interested in doing his job to the point where there are many, many letters 
from Sir Fabian Ware, who was in charge of the Wargraves Commission, admonishing him, scolding him, telling him, you have to do your job. The gardeners say they haven't seen you in months. What are you doing? He even sends telegrams to other officers saying, tell him he has to confine himself to Wargraves work. So he was not spending a lot of his time on his current job. He was spending a lot of his time actually torturing the BEF's director of graves registration because that was the job he wanted. And so denying him transport, undermining him, telling people at BEF headquarters that he didn't know what was happening, just undermining him in every possible way. So he left the evacuation of the gardeners in France to their local civilian evacuation plan. And the local civilian evacuation plan, like in Pas de Calais, they had a plan for rural dispersal, basically just like in London, where they wanted to send the kids out of London. They were expecting that if Germans attacked, that Arras would be bombed, but not overrun. And at BEF headquarters, that was the message Prower was getting, like, don't worry, everything's fine, they're not going to get this far. And so he he basically said, okay, we're just going to do this evacuation. It's not going to happen. We're not going to need to do an evacuation. But if we do, just do what the civilians are doing. But they had to have this explicit order. And that really did not come, especially in the small villages. You know, Beaumont Hamill is a place, 275 people. Everyone just left. They didn't have an official proclamation. Yeah, and, and when you have ex-servicemen who have been effectively told to wait for an order, they waited. They did. And found other ways to continue on their service. Yeah. We've heard what happened to Rosine Witten and, and her post-war life, and we, we've heard the tragic story of, of Bob Armstrong as well, you know, where he was arrested and ultimately died of, of his treatment. But we've heard a lot about Ben Leach, but not actually what happened to him for the rest of the war and potentially after the war. I don't know. Tell us a bit more about what happened to him. So after the liberation, the Imperial War Graves Commission wanted to come back to France as soon as possible. So in September, they asked Allied High Command for permission to send back a, a small group of officers to just see what had happened to the cemeteries, to see if there were facilities so that they could start sending back gardeners. Allied High Command said, no, it's not time for that. Please don't come. And the Imperial War Graves Commission said, well, do you really mean no? So in October, they sent three officers over. This was actually helped by the fact that one of the things Prower did do was he made all the officers in the War Graves Commission general list officers. So they all had general list commissions. The gardeners were civilians, but the officers, for what it was worth, had these general list commissions, although they were still paid by the War Graves Commission. So these three officers go and they roll up to Beaumont Hamill in November 1944. And Ben Leach is right there where they left him. They try to figure out why weren't you interned? They're they're really kind of wary of anyone who wasn't interned. Like, were they a collaborator? But they investigate and they're satisfied that the Albert office of the Nazi administration was actually quite chaotic. And it seems that they just missed Beaumont Hamill. There were actually two other gardeners who also were not interned, who stayed in Beaumont Hamill as well. And people from all the other towns around were interned, and some even died in the internment camp. But Beaumont Hamill was not touched, and it's not clear why. So Ben went on working in the cemeteries. So the commission's first day back at work was January 1st, 1945. So they couldn't bring gardeners who were in the UK back. But what they had were all of these ex-internees who were at Saint-Denis who had been released. And then people like Ben Leach and then a couple of other Irish gardeners or people who were older so they hadn't been interned. So on January 1st, 1945, there were 60 gardeners in France. And that was their first day back 
Now, of course, these were people who had been interned. They were not in good shape. They were, did not get that medical leave. And actually, they did eventually get a settlement that was, according to the Wargraves Commission, it was their wages, but it was actually much less than their wages that they should have gotten, along with things like raises and benefits and everything. But they didn't get that money until 1948. So they were very poor, struggling. Ben Leach writes these letters about just how the clothes are falling off him in rags, that he's trying to work in just dungarees. He doesn't have work boots. He can't get food for his family. And so they put the men on army rations but not the families. So they have a little bit of help in 1945, but it's a long time until they get compensation in 48. And Ben Leach keeps working for the Wargraves Commission. He works until the commission has a, had a rule that you retired when you were 60, but if you had good performance reviews, you could stay until you were 65. So Ben stayed until he was 65. And then he was very poor and he didn't have a lot of options. His work permit for France expired when he retired from the commission. And so he went back to Manchester and he hadn't lived there since 1916, but he had family, he had brothers and sisters, and he had actually sent his kids back to the UK after the occupation. He said, don't stay here. One of his children did become a Wargraves gardener in Beaumont Hamill, but the others went back to the UK. So he applied in Manchester for council housing because he was very poor and they waived the like the residency requirement because he was a very unusual situation, but he had to get on a wait list. It was five years long. So he was basically homeless at that point. And so what he did was he went to an American Air Force base and he slapped down his certificate that said that he had helped evaders and he, he wrote in a letter that he was doing a little light blackmail. <laughs> and so the American Air Force gave him a job in one of their warehouses and he worked in the warehouse until he was able to get council housing and then he was able to bring his wife over from France and they lived in Manchester until 1965 when he died. Well, what a story. And obviously this all of this is in your book that's coming out. So I just think it's absolutely fascinating. A real riveting storyline on so many levels of things that I haven't really considered, obviously, with people sympathetic to the cause being stuck out there when the war happened. So just remind our listeners, your book, where can they get it? When can they get it? And how can they find out more? So the book is called The Caretakers. And it's out now in the US and out March 2024 in the UK. And I do have a website, which is my name, so CaitlinDeAngelis.com. But if you search for The Caretakers, which is probably easier to remember, because actually the gardeners, the actual rank of an ordinary was gardener caretaker. That was the, oh. the basic. So there were gardener laborers who were the lower level and head gardeners who were above. But gardener caretaker was Ben Leach's rank. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, usually we cover prisoner war escapes and we, we touch upon evasion as well. We've certainly looked at the evasion lines and, you know, we're familiar with the Comet Line, Pat O'Leary Line and MI9, MISX. We covered them in, in great depth with Helen Fry when she joined us in way back in series three. And so what I loved about this and why I first got in touch with you is it tells that story but from such a different angle. These are guys who were had served in the First World War and we're gardeners. A fine profession, but not typically involved in escape, evasion, espionage, covert operations. And I love the fact that they just went above and beyond and still did their duty, still did their job and cared for the men that they had fought alongside and lost back in the First World War alongside them. Continued to care for them throughout the Second World War, through occupation. And while doing that and doing their duty for the men that they'd served with, 
they did extraordinary duty to the men who were serving and the men who were escaping and, and evading at, the, at this point. And that, that's what I loved about this angle to this story. It looks at what we look at, as I say, from such a different angle and such a brilliant, fascinating angle. And the, the work that they did deserves to be recognised in a small part through this podcast and a much bigger part through your book, The, the Caretakers. And we really would urge anyone who, who listened to us, who's enjoyed this episode, please go out and buy it. I'm sure there's so much more you could have covered over and above the extensive detail you've already gone into and it's absolutely wonderful so I think the only thing that's left to say is thank you so much for joining us Caitlin it's been absolutely wonderful yeah thank you so much for having me this has been great well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcast or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.